Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Tonight's author, published in many different places, his commentary has been published in many places, uh, won many awards and grants like the Guggenheim Fellowship, uh, so many different great things, and just so pleased to have him here for his third book, The Heavenly Table, which I know I'm enjoying, and if you haven't started yet, I know you will as well. Join me in welcoming tonight's author, Donald Ray Pollock. Thanks, Derek, for the introduction, and... Uh, I want to thank you and uh, the bookstore for uh, having me here tonight. I believe every bookstore that I've been in so far on this tour is, has been an independent. And, um, yeah, I'm sort of proud of that, that, uh, you know, we can keep supporting these stores because they need our support, believe me. Um, I'm a little frazzled. I left Portland this morning, and we went to Boulder, and then we drove back, and I'm a smoker, you know, and so I've had about three cigarettes today, and that's, you know, that, that really gets to me after a while. So, um, the new book is, uh, there's, there's two main stories threaded throughout the book, and one of them concerns the Jewett brothers, who are sharecroppers in the South in 1917, and their father dies. And for the last three or four years, the oldest brother, the only one who can read, has has been uh, he's been reading to his other brothers from this trashy dime novel called *The Life and Times of Bloody Bill Bucket*. And it's sort of like a it's almost like a Bible to these uh, boys. They don't have anything else, you know, for enjoyment. And after their father dies, they are sort of inspired by this book to become outlaws. So that's one of the stories, you know. It starts in Georgia. They commit their first crime, and they start moving northward. And like everything else that I write, it ends in southern Ohio. Um... So I'm going to read two small sections. It's going to take about 15 minutes, then I'll try to answer your questions, uh, if you have any, as best I can. One thing, though, the two pieces I'm going to read are not the most exciting parts of the book or anything. They're actually pretty tame. And I had discovered early on with my first book that sometimes stores really don't have any choice but to set up the reading section in the children's section and with my stuff you know so I um, so I you know I learned that I have to pick something that you know I can read in public um, and there's not a lot of it in my work but I've got two pieces here that I think will uh, do the job and this first part, I think the only thing you really need to know is that Pearl, 
the Jewett brothers' father. Uh, he lost his wife. She, she died from an intestinal worm 10 years before. And he took the worm and he dried it out in the sun and he sewed it up in a pillow. And he's been sleeping with it for the last 10 years. And um, also after he lost his wife, uh, he, uh, the bank took his farm. So he and his sons have been, you know, drifting around the South for many years, trying to make a living and, and just barely making one. So here we go. After he lost his wife and the bank took the farm, Pearl and his sons wandered aimlessly like nomads across the harsh, impoverished South, still broken by a war that even he was too young to remember. They encountered corruption and decay at every turn, and their luck shifted from bad to worse. He prayed to God to smooth the way a bit, but no matter how hard they worked, their pockets remained empty, and the best the four of them could do was stay one step ahead of starvation. He couldn't understand it. Sitting by the fire in whatever meager camp they had made for the night, Pearl supped on parched corn and moldy bread and went back over his life, trying to recall something he might have done to deserve such a fate. He knew that he had sinned on occasion, yet no more than most, and certainly not as much as some. Pride had always been his biggest defect, and he knew that forcing Lucille to read those church lessons had been a vain and selfish act. But still, wasn't God supposed to forgive? If not for him, then at least for his sons. And so doubts began to creep into his mind, and that worried him even more than where, where their next meal was coming from. By the time Pearl met the hermit along the foggy river, Lucille had been gone ten years, and the worm that killed her had turned to powder in his pillow. He was sitting on the bank in a daze that afternoon while the boys fished the water with their hands. They hadn't eaten anything in several days, but he didn't have the strength to help them. An occasional sparking sound that had started up in his head a few months ago had recently turned into an unrelenting sizzle, as if his brains were being sautéed in a frying pan, and he hadn't slept more than a minute or two at a time in weeks. The man came out of the woods and sat down beside Pearl without a word, as if they had known each other for years. Suddenly aware of a presence, he roused himself and looked over, saw a bent and misshapen stranger carrying a rod made of ash and wearing nothing but a grimy torn sackcloth. On his forehead, a red canker the size of a silver dollar seed like a hot coal. Pearl was reminded of a picture card he had once seen, of a heathen who had lived his entire life chained to a tree sitting in a pile of his own slops. His eyes turned to black bubbles from staring into the sun. He wondered if he was dreaming. Looks like you've been on the road a long time, he finally said to the man. The stranger nodded. See that little white bird over yonder in that cypress, he said, pointing with his rod. Shading his eyes with his hand, Pearl squinted across the river. Yeah, I see him. I've been following him for 50 years now. He takes me wherever I need to go. I had no idea a bird lived that long, Pearl said. Oh, that one will never die. How do you figure, said Pearl. Well, the hermit said, 
I've seen him blown to pieces with a four-gauge scatter gun and split in two by a panther's claws and even set on fire by a gang of no-goods over around Turlington a couple years ago. And yet there he is, a-sitting in that tree just as pretty as you please. He always comes back. Pearl thought for a minute, then asked, You some kind of preacher? The man shrugged his bony shoulders. God speaks to me from time to time, and his bird shows me the way. Not much else to it. Before he realized that Pearl was telling the man about Lucille and the worm and all the ill fortune that had come after, he confessed that he was even beginning to wonder if God existed, for why would he treat some so badly and let others off the hook completely? It didn't add up. There was no way his paltry sins were equal to the tribulation that had befallen him and his family. After Pearl finished, the man sat quietly for a long time, stroking his matted beard. Then he glanced down at his calloused feet. He leaned over and began tugging on one of his big toenails with his knotty fingers. Without so much as a wince, he tore it off and held it up for Pearl to see. You got it all wrong, my friend, the man said. The truth is you've been chosen. God's given you the chance for a better resurrection, just like he did your old woman. Without taking hold of some of the misery in the world, there can't be no redemption, nor will there be any grace. That shouldn't come as no surprise if you study on it. Look what he let them Jews do to his own son. Most of us got it damned easy compared to the suffering that went on that day. But what they call preachers nowadays, they don't want to tell people the truth. Old Satan's tricked them into believing the way to salvation can be had for a little bit of nothing. Why, some of them even go around in their fancy clothes claiming that the Lord wants us all to be rich. How does such a man sleep at night telling lies like that, using God to fatten his own pockets? Pure sacrilege, that's what it is. You wait and see. Those kind will burn the hottest come the judgment day. It's just a shame their flocks will end up roasting with them. No, you got to welcome all the suffering that comes your way if you want to be redeemed. You really believe that, Pearl said, staring down at the man's bloody toe while recalling the beaver hat and calfskin gloves the Reverend Hornsby back at the church in Hazelwood used to wear a bit too proudly. Friend, you and those boys of yours could drown me in that river right now, and it would be the most blessed thing ever happened to me. I don't know, Pearl said. I can see where sleeping out in the cold and going hungry from time to time might do a man some good, but, mister, we're about starved clear out. The hermit smiled. I ain't ate nothing in over a week except a few tadpoles and the creatures I've found in this beard of mine. I wouldn't want no more than that. If that's so, Pearl said, what is it I get for all this redeeming you talking about? Why, one day you'll get to eat at the heavenly table, the man said. Won't be no scrounging for scraps after that, I guarantee you. The heavenly table, Pearl repeated. He hadn't heard of such a thing before and wondered if maybe he had been dozing on whatever Sunday morning Reverend Hornsby preached on it. That's right, the hermit said, dropping the toenail to the ground. But keep in mind, only them that shun the temptations of this world were ever set there. So what you're saying is that them that has a good down here don't ever get to see the promised land? Their chances are slim to none, I reckon. Too many spots on their garments. 
too many wants in their hearts. All right, so I'm going to end there with that and go on to chapter 14. And this uh, concerns the other main storyline in the book, Ellsworth Fiddler, his wife Eula, and their son Eddie. And um, Ellsworth lives in southern Ohio, uh, a few miles west of a place called Nipchin, which is really there in where I live. Um, Eddie has disappeared. And after thinking about it for a while, Ellsworth um, wonders if maybe he didn't go to Meade to join the Army. Um, it's 1917. America has entered the First World War. And on the edge of the town where I actually live, they built this huge Army training camp called Camp Sherman. And I changed it to Camp Pritchard, um, but there's still an Army camp there. And so he takes off in his mule and wagon to uh, go to me, find out about Eddie. And through a mistake, he is led to believe that Eddie actually did join the service. So now he's on his way home. He, you know, he saw a few things in me. He, he talked to a few people. And uh, here we go. Oh, wait a minute. The only thing you have to know is that when I mention pickles, it's um, Eula's cat, which Eddie either accidentally or on purpose killed a few days before he disappeared. With still several miles to go before he made it home, Ellsworth came to a pasture that brought back a distant memory. Since he felt the need to take a leak anyway, he stopped the mule and stepped off the wagon onto the dirt road. As he unbuttoned his fly, he looked down into the field and thought back on an evening when he was a young boy. It was in the early part of the winter, and he was with his father. They had spent the day cutting firewood for a widow woman over on Storm Station Road, and they were on their way home, tired and hungry. The old lady had offered them part of her dinner, some bread smeared with lard, and it had bothered his father the rest of the afternoon, trying to decide if he should take a dollar from someone who was obviously even poorer than they were. In the end, he had allowed to Ellsworth that 50 cents was plenty for chopping two ricks of wood, and that's what he had charged her. His father was puffing on his pipe and talking about something, probably the weather or what he planned to plant in the spring. Ellsworth couldn't recall what now. A snow was beginning to fall. In the gray twilight, he had seen a rabbit poke its head out of a burrowed place in the dead brown leaves along the edge of a ditch that ran down the middle of the field. Though nearly 40 years had passed since that day, the culvert was still there, still overgrown. Thinking now of that rabbit, all alone on that cold winter night with the snow starting to cover the ground, a sweet and sorrowful feeling overcame him. Of course, he knew that that creature had died long ago, just as his father did a few winters later. But with a swelling in his throat, he wondered, almost desperately it felt like, if he might find some sign of that rabbit were he to go down there and search among the weeds and brambles. His eyes began to water. So many had passed on in his lifetime, and so much had happened or not happened that had taken him further and further away from the boy he was back then. 
No, he thought, as he wiped his sleeve across his face. He wouldn't find anything, not a sliver of bone or a shred of fur, not if he hunted for a week. The rabbit was gone forever, and that saddened him in much the same way the stars sometimes did at night, the way they kept shifting in the same abiding patterns, as regular as clockwork, year after year, century after century, regardless of what went on down here on this God-forsaken ball of rock and clay. Be it young men getting butchered in another war, or some crazy blind man living with a dead bird, or an innocent babe drowning in a rat-infested outhouse, or even some poor shivering rabbit sticking his head out of the weeds to watch a farm boy making his way home with his father. A couple of hours later, he unhitched Buck from the wagon and led him into the barn. After making sure he had water and feed, Ellsworth climbed into the hayloft and took a couple of poles from one of the jugs he had hidden there. Then he headed for the house, still half lost in the bittersweet nostalgia brought on by the pasture. Eula was sitting barefoot on the front steps in the dusk, sucking on a piece of bacon rind and trying not to think about pickles. In her hand was an orange bloom she'd pulled off the trumpet vine that filled a trellis at the end of the porch. The last day and a half had been the longest time she'd ever spent entirely alone since her marriage, and she had missed having the cat around more than ever. There had been a moment this morning when her grief nearly overwhelmed her, and she had hurt so much she would have almost traded her husband and son both for the chance to spend even just one more hour with Pickles. So you didn't find him, she asked. Ellsworth stopped and looked up, a little startled by her voice. For a brief moment, he believed she was talking about the rabbit in the ditch. But then he remembered Eddie and the purpose of his trip. Well, I did and I didn't, he said. He wished now he'd gone ahead and bought a broom at the Woolworths. Now that he thought about it, Parker would probably charge him twice as much for one. Did you see him? No, they wouldn't allow it. Who, she asked, who wouldn't? The Army. He'd already signed the papers by the time I got there. So you was right after all. At least we know where he is now, Ellsworth said. He turned and watched some purple martins, martins darting and pirouetting in the darkening air across the road. Who knows? Maybe this will be good for him. Biting the bacon rind in two, Eula tossed the flour into the yard and started to stand. Well, go ahead and get washed up while I put out your supper. Then you can tell me all about it. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> okay, so we're doing a podcast. So if anybody asks me a question... I'm going to repeat it into the microphone, okay? So, I mean, just so it doesn't seem too weird or anything. That's why I'm doing it. Yes? So, I think I know a little bit of your story. That the, um, you worked in a factory for 30 years and then went got an MFA. And then, so before that, while you were working, did, did you, were you writing that whole time? Or? Um, okay, so the question is, was I writing while I was working at the paper mill, I think. Sums it up, I guess. <laughs> um, 
No, well, I started working at the paper mill when I was 18. I quit school in the 11th grade and I worked in a couple other places. And then my dad helped me get on to Mead Paper Mill, which was a great job, union job, benefits. Uh, I thought I had it made. And I worked there um, for 32 years. But um, when I was 45, my dad retired from the uh, mill. And there was a moment there when I imagined doing that in another 20 years myself. And I don't know, I just this feeling came over me that I wanted to do something else. Uh, my dad had a hard time with retirement. You know, the first year or so, he just, you know, he, he took off his work boots and he sat down in front of the TV, and that was about it. It was like life was over with for a while. Uh, fortunately, he recovered from that, but but it gave me the impetus to try to do something else. And I didn't know anything but factory work, but I did have an English degree. When I was in my 30s, the paper mill had this program that paid 75% of your tuition and your books if you wanted to go to school part-time. And I did that, and I ended up with an English degree when I was like 40. So I didn't know how to do anything but factory work, but I loved to read. And, um, and I've said before, I thought very naively, well, how hard could it be to write a book? I'll just do that. Um, I was very naive. And uh, so that's when I started, when I was 45. And then I ended up, I left the mill when I was 50. Went to graduate school. Yes, sir. Can you uh, speak about the, the, the exercises I've read that you've discussed uh, about uh, retyping stories that you knew? Okay, so the question is, <laughs> um, why well, the gentleman wants me to talk about typing out stories. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, that, you know, I, I flailed around for about a year and a half, you know, like when I started when I was 45. About a year and a half later, uh, it was not working. And um, then I read this interview with a woman writer and I to this day I can't remember what her name was um, but she talked about typing out other people's stuff work and I thought heck I could do that I mean nothing was happening anyway so I might as well type out other people's stuff and um, so I for about the next year and a half I typed out one short story a week and I always chose stories that I liked, and I always uh, made sure that they were short. <laughs> so, you know, no, uh, no Henry James or anything like that. It was, uh, they were short stories, and it was a lot of different people. Um, you know, just Hemingway, Richard Yates, Flannery O'Connor, Dennis Johnson, just on and on, but Reese Pancake. Um, and I, anyway, it actually worked for me because I think I'm not a very close reader. So I could read a story over four or five times. And until I typed it out, 
I couldn't really figure out how they made the transitions or, you know, how Hemingway did dialogue or any of that stuff. It was, um, yeah, well, I'm not the smartest person in the world. So, but I think it was because I, I'm not a close reader. You know, I just read for enjoyment, even now, most of the time. It's just for enjoyment. I'm not analyzing stuff or anything like that. And uh, so after I'd been doing it for, oh, well, less than a year, I um, wrote a story that I thought, well, okay, this is, you know, this isn't bad. It's not great, but it's a lot better than what I have been doing. And I got it published. And so... Then I did that for, like I say, probably about 75 stories altogether I did like that. And it helped. Yes, sir? Is it the what part of Ohio were you referring to? Is that eastern southern Ohio or western? <clears throat> okay, so what part of Ohio am I referring to? Just because I um, in southwestern Ohio. Uh, I the the area that I write about is uh, about forty miles directly south of Columbus, so we're, you know, sort of like, well, Cincinnati is two hours to the west, Athens is an hour to the east, and we're then about another forty miles you hit the Ohio River, so yeah, just southern Ohio, right about in the middle of the the southern part. You have yeah. one? Um, so I'm kind of curious, for instance, in The Devil All the Time, you have these multifaceted, intricate plot lines. Is that something that you really understand? So the <laughs> question is, <laughs> concerning The Devil All the Time and the multiple plot lines, do I plan them out or yeah. do they just sort of happen? And... The answer is, they just happen. Uh, I, I'm a very messy writer. I don't outline anything. Um, and it, uh, yeah, you know, when I started that book, I, of course, didn't know if I could write a novel or not. And, um, you know, I just kept working at it and working at it, and, you know, I would get, one character, and then I would try to figure out a way to insert him into the, you know, the the, the general thread of the story, and um, and it just came from a bunch of work, really. And talking about being a messy writer, I mean, with the, the new book, The Heavenly Table, it started out. I was going to write a historical novel about Camp Sherman, which sat on the edge of Chillicothe, Ohio, in 1917. And my idea was that I would bring in new enlistees from different states, and then I would, you know, create some sort of a conflict between them. And and I had a, a doctor whose wife was addicted to opium. I had a couple grave robbers. None of these people are, are ended up in the book. Uh, you know, I was working on it, and then one day I started... Um, the idea for this sharecropper and his three sons, which originally I thought they were going to go to Camp Sherman, uh, but they popped up. Um, and I kept working on them for a week or so, and then I decided, 
now this is my story. It's not the camp. And so it just sort of happens that way for me. I would do well to outline. You know, I would save myself a lot of time if I would just try to figure things out beforehand. But I, I just can't do it. Uh, I just can't work that way. Sure. Yes, sir. Uh, so, so where does the vulgarity come from? Um, well, I am. I, I'm very, uh, well, you refer uh, buttoned up, as you said. I, um, you know, uh, really my only vice is, uh, you know, I smoke. Um, I drink a lot of coffee, but other than that, you know, I'm, uh, I, uh, I live a very simple life and, um, you know, I work, I walk my dog, I read, uh, work around the house, stuff like that. But I think a lot of the vulgarity comes from, um, working at the paper mill all those years. And, you know, I was around guys who, were hilarious and they were great storytellers and my, they, they could ju- you know somebody's grandmother could die and they could t- you know have a joke about it just like that and I think that's where a lot of it comes from um, you know I, and I've always liked to read uh, novels that have humor in them uh, even if they're dark you know if you can put a little bit of humor in there it, it well I enjoy it anyway uh, now, there are a lot of times I'm sure that people don't really get my sense of humor, but some do. And, you know, so I hit the mark once in a while anyway. Yes. Has it been a surprise that your work has appealed to such a wide audience? Did you anticipate it appealing to so many people? Okay, so am I surprised that my work has appealed to so many you know, different people. Uh, you know, I am surprised, well, for that I'm even standing up here, for one thing. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I don't know who those people are that you're talking about. I mean, you know, I meet them all the time, but I never can get a take on, is it one certain type of, you know, reader or whatever, but... Um, I, I've just been extremely lucky, you know, with with everything. You know, the the devil um, did really well in parts of Europe, and um, you know, it's just been—I don't know—it's almost surreal at times. You know, because when I started out, I thought, well, after I got a little bit of confidence, you know, built up, I thought, uh, and I got into. You know, I applied to grad school when I got in, and I, I'm very good at projecting into the future. You can ask my wife. Man, I can see 30 years ahead. Um, but I thought that if I could publish a book, you know, of stories and get this MFA, I could find a job in a nice little quiet college somewhere, and that would be a great life. I, I, and I still think that would be a great life. 
Unfortunately, I found out once I got to grad school, and I had to teach a course every quarter for the stipend, I discovered that uh, I was a lousy teacher, and I didn't like it. I just, you know, and it was sort of like, I'm not going to do anything that I don't like doing. You know, I've already worked in the mail and all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I've just been extremely lucky. And I'm surprised every day. Um, I'm not sure it's a lot. Well, I believe in luck. And, and, you know, and I say that because, you know, I was publishing short stories in very small literary magazines, very small ones. And I had a story called Lard that came out in Third Coast, which twice a year from Western Michigan University, probably 700 to 1,000 copies. And an agent in New York read that story. He saw in the back that I was at uh, Ohio State, and he got in touch with somebody, and he got my email address. And he said, hey, I liked your story. Um, Do you have an agent? And do you have a book? And at that time, I had just finished what I thought would be a collection of stories. I was in my second year of grad school. So I sent it to him, and um, that was it. You know, and I, you know, so I look at it like, okay, now I know that there were other good stories in that magazine, and it was a small magazine, and, um, you know, but, you know, it just, for some reason, that one appealed to him, and um, so, I mean, there is a lot of hard work. There is a lot of work involved in it, but uh, sometimes there's, you know, you get a lucky break. Yes. Not to sound like an editor, but will we have to wait four or five years? (laughs) (laughs) Well, will we have to wait four or five years for the next book? Uh, I hope not. And I know my wife hopes not. Uh, (laughs) What happened, and, you know, I've agonized over this for a long time, is that after The Devil came out, I started working on The Heavenly Table, you know, the historical novel idea and then uh, we bought another house and I looked at this house and you know the house was fine but I thought it needed a lot of work and I hired a couple guys and I went over there with them and I worked on this house for about four months or so and didn't write at all and in that four months of not writing it just got easier and easier not to go to the desk. Um, And so I went about 18 months or so and didn't write at all. And then I had some success with the book in Europe, and I started traveling. Um, And that always interrupts me, you know, to travel. But finally I looked at my bank account and I knew that I had to do something. <laughs> so, you know, once I, you know, I've heard other writers say, you know, I, I only write when I need money, that sort of thing. And that, that did spur me on to, to write the book, to finish it. Um, 
But I also learned a valuable lesson from that, and that it's not good for me to stop because it's too hard to start up again. So I've been working on another novel. Um, and, you know, if I'm, if I'm lucky, it'll be done, you know, maybe in two years or so. Uh, I'm slow. I'm very slow. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it, as long as I'm working, I'm okay with going out and doing it every day. But once I stop, it's really hard for me to start back up again. Yes, sir. Well, now that I'm writing novels, do I foresee myself ever writing short stories again? Um, I, I don't know. I don't think so. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, after I wrote the first one and that, you know, now I've got another one. It's gotten a little bit easier. Not a lot, but a little bit. But I enjoy being able to spend a lot more time with certain characters and all that, which you can't do with a short story. Um, you know, the, you know, one of the big advantages of the short story is the, the quicker payoff. You know, you, you might be able to finish a story and, you know, some people can, you know, knock one out in a couple of days. It'd take me six weeks or two months or something like that. But, um, so I don't know for sure, but I, I think, at least right now, I'm going to stick with the novels. Yeah. And your experience writing The, the Heavenly Table, uh, what, what was the most challenging thing for you writing about a historical time or a historical subject? What was the most challenging thing about uh, writing, a, you know, going back to 1917 and writing a sort of a historical novel? Um, I really didn't – well, I, at first I started out reading a lot of history about Camp Sherman, about, you know, that decade, you know, from, from 1910 to 1920. I read a lot of stuff. Um, and then I pretty much chucked it all out when I started with the Jewettes. Um, and except for maybe looking up stuff like uh, how much did a car cost – you know, in 1917, that sort of thing. I didn't do a lot of research, but you got to understand that my great grandparents, who I remember very well, um, ex you take away the radio and the electricity, and they pretty much lived like people did in 1917. So it was fairly easy for me to imagine the times. All right, well, look, I want to thank you all for coming out and. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Fode, and we have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.